it's summer. And you know what that means? It's time for a Plymouth gin and tonic. So grab yourself a glass and some ice. Start with a pourer of Plymouth gin, which is distilled using a blend of seven botanicals. Add in some tonic, then finish with a slice of orange. Now that is the perfect gin and tonic. Plymouth Gin, distilled with care and craft in England since 1793. If you're going on vacation this summer, you're going to want a few books to take with you. And if you'll be in transit, you might opt for an audiobook. I'll, I'll let you in on something. I, I tend to listen to thrillers on audio, and I would call out uh, to highlight Mick Heron's latest, um, Bad Actors. Uh, but this year, I've been listening to Ulysses. Wow. This, this, this is Fred's, a late summer read. Fred's light summer read. Yeah, exactly. That's Fred Studeman, the FT's literary editor. He's talking to me and our deputy books editor, Laura Battle, about his summer book picks. And as you heard, one of them is the audiobook of Ulysses by James Joyce. Notoriously, that is one of the harder books to decipher in the English language. How many hours is that, Fred, or weeks of your life is that? Look, I'll be honest with you. I've been, I started in February, and it's an ongoing project. I think it's in total. <laughs> but I just, like, I just love the way of dipping in and out. And it's read by Jim Norton. It's done very well, and he captures those sort of crazy moments when Bloom is in a pub and there's sort of 12 different voices going on at the same time. Whether everyone listening here would thank me for saying, take that to the beach, <laughs> I don't know. Today, we meet with Fred and Laura, who give us an excellent list of summer books to take on holiday. We'll talk about new fiction and nonfiction published this year, from thrillers to romance to a novel that suggests that we're living in a simulation. Then, Deputy Arts Editor Raphael Abraham brings us through the best summer movies. Welcome to our Summer Recommendations Spectacular. This is FT Weekend. I'm Lila Raptopoulos. Every summer, the FT publishes a range of book recommendations from our top editors and writers based on the best books to have come out so far this year. It's called the Summer Book Special, and I love it. First, because it's a great resource and a good halfway mark on the year in books, but also because the list reflects something cultural back at us. You get a sense of what publishers think will resonate with readers and also what's actually resonating. Fred and Laura, welcome. Hi there. Hi, Lila. So this is a bit of a broad question, but before we dive in, I would love to hear about some trends in the publishing industry and trends in sort of the books that we've been seeing. Um, Laura, what have you noticed this year across the publishing world? Yeah, it was an interesting question. And I think in some ways we're seeing some of the fallout from COVID. I mean, one of the one of the trends I'm noticing in fiction is this sort of time-traveling narrative that blends historical and, and speculative fiction. Um, you think of a book like To Paradise by Hanya Yanagihara or Emily St. John Mandel's Sea of Tranquility. You know, those books that are kind of set um, over several centuries and sometimes several centuries in the future. And it's an interest that's been around for a few years, I think, but they often take the form of a parable about climate collapse, and some of them also riff on, on the idea of plague through the centuries. And Emily St. John Mandel recently spoke about her 
this desire to to write about some far-flung future during COVID lockdowns. And so I wonder if it is something that's kind of intensified due to our, our shared experience of, of, of confinement over the last two years. Yeah. Um, and then Fred, what are you seeing? I mean, I noticed you recently, you wrote this column that I really liked about book talk, which is like TikTok influencers that are coming to book fairs. Oh, yeah. And trying to make reading cool for Gen Z. I, I, I don't know. It doesn't sound like a bad thing. I'm curious. No, no, no. It's all, and, and to be encouraged, I think. But I don't know if everyone has fully sort of got their heads around it, to be honest. But I mean, just if, if, for those of you who don't know what it is, there's a, there's a huge part of TikTok now that is related to books. And people are sharing their suggestions or their views on books. And it has had a huge impact. I mean, the publishers are just like stunned by this because um, it's had the effect of driving books. Some of them are old books that come off the backlist, as they say in the industry. So so stuff published 10, 20 years ago where someone Mm. who's got a big following who somehow, you know, says, look at, I don't know, Oscar Wilde. And suddenly, kapow, it's back up in the best, you know, or, or maybe for the first time ever in the bestseller list. So... You can see you're going to see a lot of publishers piling into that sector if they haven't already. Laura and Fred, you overlap a lot, but um, Laura tends to specialize in fiction, and, and Fred, you in nonfiction. So, Laura, on fiction, what would you recommend? Top beach read this summer. Looking for something kind of maybe sort of plot driven, something that will sort of carry you away. What would you What would you suggest? Yeah. Well, I think uh, this novel called uh, You Made a Fool of Death with Your Beauty um, by Ekweke Emizi, who's a really interesting, very prolific um, Nigerian-born writer. You Made a Fool of Death with Your Beauty is a romance novel. I actually just read it on this recommendation on my own vacation. It follows the protagonist, who's this New York-based artist, to the Caribbean. And it's kind of classic summer read in some some respects you know, it's like it's full of art and there's some quite explicit sex and there's like ravishing landscapes and lots of delicious food but Amezi's also doing something really interesting for a romance novel the book subverts some of the very white conventions of the romance uh, genre with a story about very um, affluent black characters so it's a light-hearted read and a very plot-driven but uh, it's also really interesting too. So I definitely recommend that. For a light nonfiction read, Fred recommends Circus of Dreams by John Walsh. If you want something that's entertaining and it's maybe a bit self-indulgent because it's about the book world, but it tells of the times of the the raucous sort of 80s and 90s, it's John Walsh's memoir, Circus of Dreams, which is very London. And it is about the world we, we live in and move in, but it's it's just sort of funny and, you know, there was more money around. There was just sort of a lot of excitement. A lot of the authors that are now very big names were just starting out and breaking through. Um, I think as our reviewer pointed out, John Walsh is a former literary editor um, for the Sunday Times and has um, amazing memory recall because he seems to be able to remember <laughs> whole conversations. Um, but uh, good for him. I asked Fred and Laura for some advice for people who want to read more. You know, going into the summer, a lot of people do a lot of their big reading where they feel like they don't have time during the year. They do it in their summer holidays or or when they have a chance to get away. And I'm curious, you both read so much for work. Like, how do you fit it in? How do you have good hygiene around keeping reading all year? What tips do you have um, 
to be reading as many books as you as you want to read? Um, I think it's sort of like just reading kind of as in as many sort of settings as you can. So, you know, reading isn't just about opening a hardback book in a deep armchair, you know, in front <laughs> of a crackling fire. It's um, it's listening to audiobooks, uh, you know, on your way to work or while you're doing a lunch break walk. Um, and it's it's just kind of, I suppose, trying to trying to fit more reading into more corners of your of your life of your day mm. well i'll be honest that i i i love you know holiday for me is i've got a routine of where i put to one side the sort of could be reds on holiday but the one thing i love doing this is going to sound maybe perverse and i'll probably lose every single listener here is i leave them there mm. it's insane i mean my wife and family hate this because i end up carrying <laughs> kilos of books but it's a routine that I've sort of developed over the years and I tend to go for things that are like you kind of alluded to that are non-work you know where it's a sort of guilty pleasure like no one's going to get bust me for reading this so you take a book with you you read it on holiday and then you leave it there for someone to find we often go to Italy and there's a sort of well-established thing of you can leave books you know by the roadside there are little sort of uh, boxes where you can leave books for other people to pick up. So I like that sort of passing it on. We were chatting ahead of this that anything to do with empire is very popular right now. And uh, that's really interesting. And I'm curious what that means and sure. what those books are. And um, if you could, if you're willing to give an interpretation of what that means about us, that would be great. Well, I think it means lots of things. You know, it's, it's, in a way, a continuation of something that certainly in the UK has been underway for a, a couple of years. And it's a sort of revisiting and re-reckoning with um, the subject of empire and its legacy and trying to also adjust some of the perceptions that may um, have existed or do, do exist. You know, what you were taught or not taught at school doesn't always chime with the reality. You know, Caroline Elkin had a big book out earlier this year, Legacy of Empire, which is a very unflinching, critical reckoning with the British Empire. Then you've just more recently had Dominic Levin's book, um, Shadow of the Gods, which is sort of looking at the whole concept of emperors and empires through history and sort of just making the point that actually that is the sort of format that has dominated much of human history. You know, it's almost like it's unusual to be living in a place and in a time when there is, when you aren't within an empire. Mm. And there's going to be some other books coming out later this year around this. So it tells you just what a live subject that is because it plays into so many very live and urgent debates that are happening in societies, whether it taps into Black Lives Matter um, or what's been, you know, happening uh, geopolitically. One big topic that no one is reading about is COVID. Fred says there's been a boon in nonfiction books about the pandemic and about viruses, but their sales numbers are extremely low. On the other hand, books on Ukraine and on Russian influence have seen a massive spike for obvious reasons. Fred recommends a book called Putin's People by investigative reporter Catherine Belton. A brilliant book about the whole rise of Putin and the system that he's created. That's become a massive bestseller, in not just in the English, but in, in many other territories as well. Oliver Bullough's book, uh, Butler to the World, 
fortuitous timing in that it's about the whole sort of the London end of dealing with, let's just call it fast and loose money uh, Mm. from oligarchs and how that has sort of, what that has done to London and to British society that came out just almost to coincide with the invasion. And they've had a massive spur well, thank you both so much. I uh, Before we close up, is, are there any books that we should have talked about that we didn't? Anything that, uh, trends that we should have talked about, but, but we didn't? Well, shall I scare you, Lila, with one thing? Sure. I love being scared. <laughs> Laura and I were talking. We had, she, she may have something much happier to add to this. We had two things that surprised, well, one surprised us and one slightly alarmed us. We did a big books essay on marriage. Mm-hmm. And the state of marriage, and that sort of combined books that were almost sort of one was almost sort of in the realm of self-help. <laughs> FT readers loved it. <laughs> we got a huge mailbag, and we didn't see that one coming. So we we were obviously um, a little bit behind on understanding the lives of our readers. And then the one that went off the charts is Ed Luce's essay on the question of whether America was heading for civil war. Mm. It's an absolute just broke all the records. Uh, but obviously that isn't. Some, it's not the happiest of uh, subjects. <laughs> so, Laura, so, come in with something happy, Laura, because we can't end with civil war. So, wait, just just to clarify, so our readers are interested in complex problems in marriage and um, the possibility of American civil war. Yes. Yeah, we're trying to find some happiness and humour. Um, sure, it's a, yeah, it's go a, for it. And I've ruined weekly, it all. Sorry. It's a weekly struggle. It really is. This isn't exactly... Funny, but um, another kind of area area of interest um, for our readers is AI and the whole idea of simulated re- reality. Mm. Um, and, and there's there's a novel that I've been Fred is so sick of me talking about because I just absolutely loved it that I read at the start of the year called The Anomaly by Hervé Letelier, and it's um, just been published in English translation by uh, the, the translations by. Adriana Hunter, uh, and it was published in January. And this book won the 2020 Prix Goncourt, and it um, imagines the kind of the duplication of an Air France flight to New York and all mm. its passengers. And it basically explores this idea of whether we are, in fact, just living out a com- kind of computer simulation um, and it's it's kind of it's it doesn't sound funny, but bits of it are very funny. But it's also thrillerish and sort of scary, and it's got a bit of everything actually. Um, so that as a broad theme is something our readers are interested in, and it's something that in both fiction and non-fiction there have been books this year that have, have been playing around with that. Great. Okay, Laura, Fred, thanks for doing this. This has been great. Thanks, Laura. It's been great fun. It's been wonderful. Thanks. The FT Summer Book Special is all out now at ft.com slash summerbooks. I've put the link in the show notes, and I've also included a list of all the books that Fred and Laura mentioned today. Okay, now that you've got a long list of summer books, it is time for summer movies. Enter Raphael Abraham, the FT's deputy arts editor and regular film critic, Raph has watched dozens of this year's movies so that we don't have to, and he's here to tell us what we should watch and what he thinks will get us back in theaters after a very long two and a half years. Hi, Raph. Welcome to the show. Hi, Lila. Really good to see you. So as the deputy arts editor and 
our official film buff, I would say, um, we wanted to walk through the summer movie calendar with you and also talk about the industry a little bit. So I wonder, maybe to start, you went to Cannes in May. You saw 24 films in less than a week. That's right. Right. Madness. Madness. Yeah. You told me nobody eats popcorn in the theater, which like shocked me. <laughs> but you said it was very like unacceptable. I to mean, eat. I've never seen it. I'm, yeah. There's definitely the, there aren't like concession stands, <laughs> right. you know, where they're shoveling out popcorn and big gulps and whatever. Now that kind of thing is is would be seriously frowned upon. Right. It's I just mean, for us. I think commoners. Yeah. Well, I just yeah. <laughs> How do you prepare for a marathon? like that? What are you going in looking for? Are you looking to be in the room when they're screening something that's going to be a hit? Yeah, no, well, that's absolutely, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, the short answer is, of course, you don't know. You never really know what's going to hit, or let alone what's going to win the Palm Door. So it it comes with this massive anxiety. Everyone who's there, you know, at least as a critic, is trying to watch as much as possible because they're afraid of missing the great thing. Right. In my case, you go through the program, you try and look at the names and see what you definitely don't want to miss. The thing is, there's, I think it was about 20 films in the main competition. Mm -hmm. Now, you don't want to miss any of those because one of them is going to win the Palm Door. Right. And this is a real problem. And for me, it was this year in particular, is that, you know, the best films aren't always necessarily in the competition. Right. So word of mouth is very valuable. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, this year... I heard somebody had seen this small Scottish film uh, called After Sun, which was showing in the Critics Week section, mm-hmm. one of the sidebars. So I managed to seek it out and see it, and it was absolutely beautiful. It was mm. the best thing I saw. Wow. And it's not in the main competition. So, you know, so it's a kind of a treasure hunt. You know, yeah. you, you try to watch as much as possible because the best stuff isn't necessarily in the most obvious place. Right. So let's get started. I asked Raf to come in with the top four films that will be out this summer that he thinks we absolutely need to see. The first one is a film that's just come out here in the UK, and I think it's on AMC in the US. It's an Australian film called Nitram. Mm -hmm. It's a very powerful film, but it's a difficult subject. It's sort of based on the backstory of the man who was responsible for the worst uh, mass shooting in Australian history. Mm. And obviously very timely in the wake of um, Uvalde. Mm-hmm. Um, and it sort of tells his story from childhood and adulthood. And it's very subtly done. It's not sensationalist. It's mm-hmm. kind of showing this man with all his obvious mental health problems, but also it's very humanizing and it shows his family. And the subtext is is a very powerful indictment of gun laws in Australia, which were changed by this yes. event. Right. Um, so it's, you know, this is not a fun summer movie. It's mm-hmm. a very difficult one, as I say, but it's got terrific performances. Um, and the lead actor, Caleb Landry-Jones, who who won a prize in, in Cannes last year, Best Actor Prize, um, eerily, he's from Texas, and he gives an incredible performance. And Judy Davis plays his mum, who's also brilliant. When you say nuanced, how do you paint a portrait of someone who's done such a horrible thing without seeming sympathetic? Yeah, well, it's it, it does it by presenting things very plainly, I guess. You know, you sort of see him going through his everyday life and people being mean and cruel to him, but also you see that he comes from a loving family and, you know, that his parents are good, kind, you know, honest people. 
just trying to do their best with this kid. And they don't know what he's going to become. They know he's got problems. They're just doing their best. Mm -hmm. It's not trying to, it's not like a portrait of evil. It's just sort of an honest portrait of somebody. So we started, we started heavy. We started heavy. <laughs> Nitram is number one. Number two, what would you recommend? Well, another film is a lovely Iranian film called Hit the Road, uh, which is, as the title suggests, a road movie. And it's a really sweet, funny, uh, very light-footed film um, with this little ensemble cast. The whole thing takes place mostly in, in, in this car, which is driving through <laughs> Iran, um, with this kid who's an absolute just bundle of energy and life force. And uh, his rather downtrodden parents but it's very warm and sweet and it's kind of been described as a as an iranian little miss sunshine if oh wow well, yeah but it's also this kind of undertone to the whole thing because the reason why they're driving across iran which is sort of gradually revealed there's another more emotionally weighty kind of you know pull to the whole thing um so it's just which really, you will not reveal which i won't reveal yeah i mean it's kind of only partially really revealed in the film itself so right. it's like yeah it seems to wrong to give that away but what kind of adds gives it a whole nother dimension as well is it's the first film made by um his name is panar panahi yes and film lovers will know ja the name jafar panahi is his father who's a, a brilliant filmmaker um, um dissident uh, filmmaker in iran amazing okay nitram hit the road what's uh, next next up is McEnroe. Uh, oh, yes. <laughs> documentary, McEnroe. which I just saw the other night, which is obviously very well-timed uh, with Wimbledon mm -hmm. just kind of uh, reaching its climax. And it's, yeah, it's a very probing psychological study of the great man, <laughs> famed for his hot temper, shall sure. we say, as well as his, yeah, terrifically hot tennis. It, to some degree, it does tell a familiar story of his... His rise and his great rivalry with Bjorn Borg and, and Jimmy Connors and, and others. But then it, it, it kind of goes beyond that. He's very much involved in it and he's, you know, sort of the main figure in it. So you really get his inner thoughts. And it's basically, you know, it's very much an exploration of greatness. and But how greatness does not necessarily equal happiness. Mm. And him reflecting on why he was the way he was and why he wasn't able to enjoy his success more and um, and the sort of tyranny of perfection and where yeah. that comes from. Um, so there's a lot in there about his relationship with his dad, uh, his relationship with his children who who come into it as well. Towards the end, it's almost like a group therapy session. Where, you know, <laughs> That's I mean, interesting. These themes of like you become the great and then you don't know where you're going or you don't actually find the happiness that you thought it yeah. would bring you. There's like time and time again. Yeah. And I, I, mean, I love them. <laughs> and it, but I guess it's a very contemporary, you know, subject. As yeah. Well, right. And it's sort of, you think it's, it's, it's impossible to think of this being made, you know, I don't know, even sort of 20 years ago. But now it's sort of everyone seems willing to... Get into it. Get into it. And, yeah. yeah. And sort of show their demons and, you know, to share them with the world. So... Times have changed. Okay, so uh, you have one more film for us. I have, yeah. So um, something hopefully lighter and more fun uh, <laughs> <laughs> towards the end of the summer. 3,000 Years of Longing. It stars Tilda Swinton and Idris Elba, and it's a really big fantasy, epic, spectacular. There's no story about wishing that is not a cautionary tale. 
We all have desires, even if they remain hidden from us. But it is your story, and I cannot wait to see where it goes. Oh, how it might end. Tilda Swinton is this um, academic uh, Northern English woman who goes to Istanbul and happens upon this uh, this little trinket in the market and unleashes Idris Elba, this enormous genie. Wow. Two legends, too. Two legends, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sort of, uh, you know, battling wits on the screen because mm-hmm. um, she's a very sort of buttoned up, you know, English academic. And uh, he's this, obviously, this genie who's full of these tales of, uh, of wonder. So, yes, these incredibly ornate, beautiful flashbacks to the ancient world and King Solomon and the Queen of Sheba and all these sort of fantastical tales, which are brilliantly done. Mm. The director is um, George Miller, uh, who made Mad Max Fury Road a few years ago. There's just these, the visual opulence of these tales from the genie's past. The djinn, I should say. It's kind of very sweet as well. It's kind of, you know, leaves you with a nice warm feeling. One of the biggest struggles for Hollywood has been just getting people back to theaters. One survey found that 61% of Americans didn't go to a movie house at all last year. And not because of a fear of COVID. According to another survey, it's mostly because it's expensive and people got used to watching movies at home. I'm curious looking forward, like what you think will get people back in the theaters. Top Gun was very popular. Everybody's very excited about Elvis, which, you know, it's a Baz Luhrmann spectacular, right? Like, it seems like a thing that will really get people in theaters. Is that what's going to work at the end of the day? I wish I'd brought my crystal ball with me. <laughs> of course, the answer is nobody really knows. Like, you right. know, famously, I just, you know, nobody even in Hollywood really knows what's going to hit. And, you know, the success of Top Gun Maverick is, I think it's kind of left a lot of people astounded. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, I, it's forecast to pass $1 billion at the box office. Mm-hmm. You know, probably by the time this goes out, it will have. Yeah. Um, and I, th- I think the, the only person not surprised seems to be Tom Cruise. Who just, <laughs> right? He's just like, he was... He's like, of course. He, yeah. So, of course, nobody really ever knows. I mean, when you look at the list of bo- uh, biggest box office successes of this year, it's not exactly that full of surprises. Almost everything is a sequel of some sort, you know, Marvel movies, the Doctor Strange movie, Jurassic Park sequel. Mm. I think all but one are sequels of in the sort of top eight grossing movies of the year, and one is an adaptation of a successful video game series. Right. So, you know, to some extent, you never know what's going to hit really big, but if you've got an existing IP, it's, you know, it's obviously it comes with an existing fan base, Right. And uh, I mean, I think it also, I mean, of course, crucially, it has to be good, right? Right. I I went to a movie recently in the theaters and there was a trailer for Top Gun and Tom Cruise's face popped up and the whole theater started laughing because it was almost like we didn't, couldn't believe he was still around. Like he's such a caricature almost of (laughs) an actor now. And then I have some friends who have seen it who said it was the best thing they've seen, the most fun they've had in a theater in a really long time, and it was really, really good. But I, yeah, I had a similar experience with Elvis, where mm-hmm. I went in very sniffy, sort of going, oh, I don't really like Baz Luhrmann films, and this is, you know, it's just not my kind of thing, mm-hmm. and prepared to sort of sneer at it, and, you know. And I was, I must say, I mean, it's, it's at least the whole first hour is, which kind of shows Elvis's rise, youth and rise to stardom. Yeah, I was pretty blown away. It's Mm -hmm. a hugely entertaining film. 
But this ain't no nostalgia show. Uh, bring that bass up, Jerry. I wish to promote you, Mr. Presley. I believe I can be great. My last question is just, as an avid moviegoer, an expert, what would you recommend for people who are just getting back into the going to theaters? Honestly, I think Elvis is a really good reason to go back into cinemas. It is really eye-grabbing, big-screen entertainment. Great music, great visuals. It's not necessarily the definitive, you know, sort of thinking person's movie about Elvis, but the fact is you will go in and be blown away with just the sort of visual spectacular of the whole thing. (laughs) (laughs) Raph, this was awesome. Thank you so much. My pleasure. I've put a list of Raph's picks and the reviews of each of the films in the show notes. That's the show this week. Thank you for listening to FT Weekend, the podcast from the Financial Times. Next week, I've been dying to have him on. We speak with Martin Wolf, chief economics commentator at the Financial Times and debatably the most influential economics journalist in the world. Martin tells us how he forms an opinion, the importance of changing your mind, and where he's changed his mind over the course of his esteemed career. Then we talk about the phenomenon of gentle parenting with my colleague, Courtney Weaver. If you got some good recommendations out of this episode, please do share it on your social platforms or send it to a friend who may like it. That really helps the show. And also let me know the films or books that you've watched or read so far this summer that you've loved and really recommend. I'll share them alongside this episode on Twitter and on Instagram. I am on Instagram and Twitter at Lila Rapp. The show is on Twitter at FT Weekend Pod, or you can always email us at FTWeekendPodcast at FT.com. Fred, Laura, Raph, and I did all these conversations in person in London recently, which is super fun. I've got some behind-the-scenes photos from the studio on my Instagram. A big shout-out this week goes to Mariana Giusti, who organized the live books conversation that you just heard on Twitter. Mari, you really herded cats with us to make that happen, so thank you. Links to everything mentioned today are in the show notes as usual, alongside a link of the best offers available on a subscription to the FT, including 50% off a digital subscription and a great deal on FT Weekend in print. Those offers are at ft.com slash weekend podcast. Make sure to use that link. I'm Lila Raptopoulos, and here's my incredible team. Katya Kamkova is our senior producer. Lulu Smith is our assistant producer. Our sound engineers are Breen Turner and Sam Javinko with original music by Metaphor Music. Neve Rowe is our intern. Zoe Sullivan is our contributing producer. Topher Forges is our executive producer. And thanks go, as always, to Cheryl Brumley and Renee Kaplan. Have a lovely weekend, and we will find each other again next week. It's summer, and you know what that means. It's time for a Plymouth Gin and Tonic. So grab yourself a glass and some ice. Start with a pourer of Plymouth Gin, which is distilled using a blend of seven botanicals. Add in some tonic, then finish with a slice of orange. Now that is the perfect gin and tonic. Plymouth Gin, distilled with care and craft in England since 1793.